But today, we're going to take a look at the Apostle Paul. He had a more, a more head-on experience than what you just saw. He was on the road to Damascus, and he has this great experience with Jesus. But before we get there, let's take a look at who Paul really was. You know, the Apostle Paul was a, a multifaceted kind of guy. He has a life-changing experience. And I want you to think about it in terms of transformation. A lot of times we think that, that there's this idea of us that's a little bit better than what we are now. And that's what Christianity is all about, to make me a better version of the person I am. I want you to know that Christianity is not to make you a better version of the person you are, but it is to transform you, to make you something completely different than what you currently are. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've had that transformation, and you've probably been chipping away at becoming better and better and better. And so you have this idea that, that my, my, my goal in Christianity has become a little bit better, better, better every day. But I want you to realize that transformation is really at the key, it's really at the heart of you becoming better and better and better every day. Because we have a transformation of what? We have a transformation first of the mind, what you think about, what you believe. What you believe affects the way that you think, and the way you think affects the way that you act. And the way that you act affects the lifestyle that you portray. And so let's take a look today at the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was passionate and he was immersed in religion. The Apostle Paul, before he was Paul, and let's refer to him today as Saul. Saul became the Apostle Paul. So Saul was his original name and he was a very passionate man. He was a Pharisee. He had been taught by Gamaliel. He was passionate about his religious belief. Now, I want you to know that passion is not all there is to being a follower of Christ, even though passion is a good thing, because the Islamic extremists are passionate, don't you think? In fact, they're so passionate that they're willing to give their lives for their cause. Most Islamic people are more passionate than Christian people are in the United States of America today. I'm going to pass that judgment on us. And so, therefore, what is it that makes people passionate? Okay? And I'm going to say it's not about just what you put in your head, but it's about what you truly believe to be the absolute truth of your existence. Why you're here. Why are we on this earth? Why do we populate this planet? Well, the Apostle Paul was on this planet because he was promoting Judaism. And he was a passionate believer in Judaism. And he would do whatever it took to make sure that Judaism excelled, to make sure that Judaism was believed, to make Ju sure that Judaism was the nation's religion. He would go to extremes. In fact, uh, he had some very incredible credentials. He was a rising star in Judaism. Like I said, he had been trained by Gamaliel, one of the great rabbis of the time. And if you had been a student of, of Gamaliel, you were considered the cream of the crop. You were considered a go-to kind of guy. And so he was a rising star here in Judaism, and he gets a chance to spread his wings a little bit. And so as he was taught by Gamaliel, he was a keeper of the law. He was circumcised on the eighth day, and we'll find that in today's scripture. And being circumcised on the eighth day is an indicator that he was a premier keeper of the law. Not only did he do what it said, but he did it when it was told to be done. And so he was this rising star of Judaism, a keeper of the law. In fact, it says in Galatians that he excelled beyond his peers. He was better at it than anybody uh, else. And so we find that he had a position. He, and, and if you have a way to analyze your life, you want to, first of all, recognize what is your position. 
Paul, Saul's position was that he was a Pharisee. And so that dictated everything else about him. He had a purpose. And his purpose was to advance in Judaism. He wanted to practice it better and better and better all the time. He wanted to be one of the premier keepers of the law. Now, not only did he have this purpose, but he also had a priority. And the way his priority was expressed is that he was going to exert persecution on anyone who didn't strictly follow Judaism. So now you can get into this guy's head a little bit. He was a Pharisee. He had this idea of advancing in Judaism. And so therefore, he was going to persecute anybody who didn't practice Judaism like it was intended to be practiced. Now, what would we call Saul today, do you think? A legalist. But I would go beyond that and call him a spiritual terrorist. He's willing to kill anybody that didn't believe like he did. Okay? And wouldn't that be us if we said, okay, we're going to kill everybody who doesn't believe Christianity like we do. We're going to kill them. What would we be? We'd be a spiritual terrorist. And so therefore, that's in Saul's day, that wasn't a known uh, commodity, but that's what we would probably call him today. So I want you to see the transformation that happens because sometimes we gloss over what Saul was in order to become Paul. Now, transformation, and I, I want to make this point about Saul, transformation is more than just conversion to a religion. Okay, because Paul was very ardent about his pursuit of Judaism, right? But yet he was not transformed. Transformation comes at a different level. Saul had the outward form of religion, but he didn't have the inward form of transformation. And we can adhere to a bunch of rules. We can observe Christianity the way we think it should be observed without transformation. Now, sometimes the way to find out if you're transformed or not is what do you really want to do? Just analyze that. What do you really want to do? Did you, when you woke up this morning, were you looking forward to coming to church? Yes. Good. You're transformed. <laughs> okay. If you weren't and you just came because it was the expected thing to do, you know, because society expects me or maybe the church expects me or maybe Pastor Mike expects me or maybe whatever, then maybe it's not because you've been transformed and you have this inner desire to know Christ, to exhibit Christ and to live Christ. Maybe that transformation hasn't quite happened for you yet. Now, God always values certain things. And when we look at Saul's life, he did not value mercy more than sacrifice. Saul was willing to sacrifice everything that he had in order for the cause of Judaism, Judaism to be spread and to be maintained. He was willing to sacrifice whatever it took, but he didn't have any mercy to kill those who were opposed to him, who didn't believe like he did. And so he didn't have that idea of mercy. Now, we also need to be wary of some things. We need to be wary of doing church without being church. You know what I mean? You know, we do some things for the outward appearance. We do some things for the external applause, maybe. But yet, we don't do it internally because we have been transformed. We do church. Maybe we, we practice religion. Maybe we do religion out of habit. Maybe we have this outward appearance, but we have no inward transformation. Now, what causes us to do what we do and live like we live? I'm going to say, to a large degree, it's our heart. Okay, it's our heart. It's our innermost desires that we usually exhibit and accomplish. Transformation happens when your desires change. 
When my desire for myself and my comfort and my maybe my advancement, maybe when that changes to, you know what, it's not about me, but it's about other people. Maybe it's not about even other people. Maybe it's about Jesus. That's when you know that transformation has happened. When your desires begin to change and as they are changed. Now, uh, in Jeremiah 17, 9, uh, and you might want to jot that down. We don't have it in our program today. But jot down Jeremiah 17, 9, because it says the heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know its ways? So sometimes we say, oh, it's not really what you do. It's whether you do it with all of your heart. Well, our heart is deceitful and wicked, right? If we go back to that unregenerate state, if we go back to that uh, pre-Jesus state of our lives, our heart is deceitful and wicked. It is selfish. It wants to promote itself. It wants its own comfort. It wants its own notoriety. It wants its recognition. It wants what your selfishness wants. Now, it has been said that the heart of the matter is really the problem of the human heart. The heart of our matter is the problem of our unregenerate heart, our unredeemed heart. Now, uh, one of the things that we learn about Saul is that no one is beyond forgiveness. This guy went out and he killed people, he imprisoned people, he, it was men, women, and children, and so therefore he went out and he persecuted the church, and he has this miraculous transformation, and it centers around the forgiveness of his sin. There was a pastor one time, and he had a congregant, he went, one of his, the ladies in his congregation. She says, you know what, pastor? I hear God speak to me, and I need to say things that he speaks to me. And he says, well, you know, that, that's cool. I want people to be able to hear God, but let me test you to make sure that you truly hear God. When I was in Bible school, there was a sin that I committed, and I want you to ask God what that sin was, and then I want you to come back and report to me. If you, you know, and if you really hear God, then he'll report to you what, you what I did, and you'll tell me, and I'll have a confirmation that you truly do hear God. And so she went away. A couple of days later, you know, she prayed, and she heard God. A couple of days later, she bumps into the pastor, you know, and he says, well, have you heard anything from God? And she says, well, yes, pastor, I have. And he says, well, what did he say to you about that sin I committed when I was in Bible college? She says, well, what God told me was he doesn't remember. You know, because our sins are separated as far as the east is from the west. He remembers our sin no more. And it's not that he can't recall it. It's that he chooses not to hold it against us anymore. It's, he chooses not to see us in light of all of the junk that we've done. And so Saul here, he gets forgiveness. And he's seen by God completely differently because of the transformation that he is, he's experienced. God sees the transformed person, not the unredeemed person. And so, therefore, we have hope for the future. Now, let's see what we can learn about the Apostle Paul, who is previously known as Saul. In Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 16, it says this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats. Now, what, what, where have we seen Saul before? Anybody know? We've seen Saul before in the book of Acts where? At the stoning of Stephen. Yeah, he was sitting by his wife. In fact, he's watching the guy's clothes. You know, he's watching them do that and giving his affirmation to that. Because what was Stephen? Stephen was a person of Christianity. He wasn't a person of Judaism. And so now we find Saul saying, you know what? That kind of thing needs to spread. The stoning of Stephen needs to spread not just to Stephen, but to the rest of the people who identify as Christians. So, meanwhile... Saul was still breathing out, <coughs> excuse me, 
he was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Murderous threats. I want you to circle that. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters uh, to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, or in other words, Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners for, to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he didn't eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judea on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now there's three things here that we see in Saul's transformation. Now, not only do we see these in Saul's transformation, but I hope as you look back in your life or as you experience today, you will be able to say, you know, I see those three things in my life and my transformation. The first thing is that transformation involves being confronted with the truth. How many of you enjoy being confronted with the truth? (laughs) I like it as long as the truth is very complimentary and kind. You know, I don't like it when the truth is mean and nasty. I don't like it when people say, you know, Pastor Mike, you're looking kind of old. Actually, I don't mind that. I spent all my life getting this old. So this is an accomplishment. But the truth is that sometimes we don't like the truth about us. We don't like the negative truth about us. But we find here that that Saul is confronted with the truth. Uh, Prime Minister Winston Churchill once said this about truth. Truth is incontrovertible. It means it cannot be changed. It cannot be taken back. it It cannot be altered. It's incontrovertible. He says, panic may resent it. Ignorance may deride it. Malice may distort it. But there it is. The truth is the truth. And you can't alter that. We live in a day and age where the truth is not easily recognized. In fact, the truth is not readily accepted. Your truth can be your truth, and my truth can be my truth. And we can happily coexist with separate ideas of what is true. But I want you to know that absolute truth exists. And therefore, the truth is the truth. And as Winston Churchill would say, he would say, there it is. There it is. The truth is the truth. Uh, The Bible confronts us with the truth that in our natural state, we are in rebellion to God. I don't know if you've ever come to that realization, but every one of us in our sinful condition prior to coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and some of you are in that position here today, 
we need to come to the realization that we really live in rebellion to God. It's not that we don't know him. It's not that we don't understand him. It's that we live in rebellion to him. There's God's way, and then there's our way. And we have chosen to live our way until we come to that point of transformation. Now, Saul found himself confronted with this very same truth, and we find it in verses 4 and 5. It says, he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And notice what the response is. I am who? Jesus. I'm, he doesn't say, I am God. He says, I am Jesus, and not only am I Jesus, I'm the Jesus that you are persecuting. You're persecuting. By persecuting Christianity, you are persecuting Jesus. So what he's saying is you're living in rebellion to who I am and what I came on this earth to do. Now, I can imagine Saul's response to that was kind of maybe a wide-eyed amazement, but his wide-eyed amazement soon turned to blindness. Now, blindness is kind of an interesting thing. Blindness, as we read here, we probably think of, well, he didn't have the ability to see visually. But this blindness not only indicates that he could not see visually, but that he was in a state of blindness. He could not see the truth because all of Judaism and all of his sinfulness had clouded his mind to believe that he was religiously all right with God. And when we believe that we're all right with, that, with God without Jesus, we're really blinded to the truth. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by him, except by Jesus. And Saul had not come to God through Jesus, and so he had been blinded because he believed he was all right with God. We live in a day and age today where most people believe that they're all right with God. Why? Because, well, I do pretty good. I'm okay. I don't do as badly as so-and-so does. In fact, I know some Christians that don't live up to my standard of morality. And so, therefore, we compare ourselves with other people, and we say, we're all right. But what do we really need to compare ourselves to when it comes to holiness? We need to compare ourselves to the most holy thing there is in the universe, and that's God. Jesus came to represent God on this earth. And so if we compare ourselves to Jesus, how do we stack up? Not so well. Not so well. And so we know that there's a distance between us and holiness. And so therefore, it's not a comparison to other people, but it's a comparison to holiness. Because there's two ways to get to heaven, right? Okay, there is. Okay, there's two ways to get to heaven. One is to be forgiven of all of your shortcomings and your faithlessness and your rebellion. One is to be forgiven and committed to follow Jesus Christ for the rest of your life. That's one way. The other way is that you be sinlessly perfect. Okay, you choose. You choose. Okay, now I don't know about you, but the Bible's pretty clear. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glorious ideal. Now, what's God's glorious ideal? Jesus. We fall short of who Jesus is. And so therefore, there is no one righteous, no, not one. And so therefore, can we get to heaven based on our perfection? No, No. but that is a way to heaven. We just can't do it. So therefore, we're relegated to the forgiveness route, the grace of God through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Now, Saul hears this voice and Jesus is asking him, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting the church, Why are you persecuting these Christians? He doesn't ask that question. Why are you persecuting me? Because Jesus takes personally the identification with his church. Who is this? This is the body of Christ, right? So what happens to the body of Christ happens to Jesus. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, 
Jesus had an encounter with his disciples when he was on the earth, and he's getting ready to send them out. He's getting ready to send them out to, on a missionary journey, and he says, okay, I'm going to send you out. I've given you some training. Now you're going to get some hands-on experience. I want to send you out, and here are the instructions. And at the end of the instructions, he says this in Luke chapter 10, verse 16. He says, whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Okay. Now, had Saul rejected God? Yeah. He had rejected God because he had rejected Jesus. And Jesus says, whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me, the Father. And so if Saul has an inkling of, of spiritual sense, he's starting to realize, man, I'm on the wrong road. I have ascribed to the wrong method of getting to know God. Now, each one of us needs to be confronted with the truth about ourselves. We live in a day and age in which uh, basically mankind is a pretty good guy, right? We do our best. We, we, we're really basically good. But the Bible teaches something completely different. The Bible teaches that there is none righteous, no, not one. All have fallen away. None even know how to seek God. And if it wasn't for Jesus and the Holy Spirit of God reaching out to people to be able to connect with God, we would have no clue. And so therefore, there is nothing good within me that causes me to be like God apart from him living within me. G.K. Chesterton once said, uh, when he was asked the question, what's wrong with the world? You know what his response was? It's not the evil people. It's not the ones who do wrong. It's not the ones who create havoc. He said, I am. I am what's wrong with the world. Because he knew that in his unregenerate state, he was nothing more than a selfish man who wanted only his own personal comforts, who didn't have concern for those people outside of him. And every one of us must come to that realization as well. It's all about me is the lifestyle of the world. It's a lifestyle of the unregenerate person. And so therefore, we need to come to that awareness of ourselves. Now, when Saul became Paul, he wrote this. And the words that I just quoted a bit ago. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glorious ideal. All of us have sinned. Now, you wouldn't think that Saul would say that, but the Apostle Paul did. And this is one of the hallmarks and one of the real marks of his transformation. It changed the way he thought. Our transformation should change the way we think about mankind. Okay? Usually, if we come from this idea that we are the products of evolution, then we are the top of the heap. We're the... We're at the very top of the food chain. And therefore, being at the top gives us the permission, in fact, gives us the responsibility to determine right and wrong, good and evil, how things should operate, the way people should relate. It gives us the responsibility to determine that. However, if we believe that there is a God in the universe and that we are creations of him, then it's his responsibility to determine right and wrong, good and evil, and how we should relate to him, to each other, and to the creation. So therefore, it changes the way we think. It changes the viewpoint that we approach this world. Have you ever wondered how a worm gets into an apple? How many of you think, you know, not until you eat one. But sometimes you will find, and scientists have, have figured this out, that the worm doesn't come from the outside into the apple. It comes from the inside of the apple outward. And you scratch your head and say, how could that happen? Well, the way it happens is that the birds, as they go around the apple blossoms or the, the insects or whatever it is, they deposit these little eggs of worms 
in the apple blossom. As the apple blossom matures into an apple, that little egg of a worm is inside of it. It hatches and it eats its way out. Now that's a lot like sin, isn't it? We are born with this egg inside of us. And, you know, we say, oh, little children, you know, they're not born with sin. Well, it doesn't, you know, when they're about six or seven years old, they sure have it. You know, and we say, oh, well, they inherit it from their environment or their surroundings or the people or whatever it is. No, I want you to know that every person that is born is born with a sin nature. It's that little seed of sin that comes to fruition when we are born and it eats its way out of us. Now, are you a sinner because you sin or do you sin because you're a sinner? You know, that's one of those who came first, the apple or or the egg or or the chicken, the apple or the egg, you know. No, the, the apple or the chicken? No, the egg or the chicken. Which one came first, the egg or the chicken? You know, well, I want you to know that sin came first. Sin lives within us. We are sinners, and it works its way out into sinful behavior. So therefore, sin is born within every person. It eats its way out like the worm does in the apple and soon produces sinful actions. So whether a baby ever sins or not, they're still in a sinful condition. And I don't know if, you know, we, we often think, well, how is sin exhibited in a little baby? I want you to know little babies are the most selfish little creatures you've ever known in the world. They're supposed to be because they're sinful, but also because they are dependent. And because they are dependent, what do they do when they're hungry? They demand immediate attention. What happens when they have a dirty diaper? They demand immediate attention. Why? Because it's about them and their comfort. Their selfishness is exhibited in the very natural state of being a baby. Now, every one of us is born sinful. And so Jesus says what? He says, the truth is what is going to set you free. You will know the truth, and the truth will do what? It will set you free. What's the truth about mankind? Every one of us. We were born in what? We were born in sin. And therefore, how many of you have ever sinned? Every one of us. Okay, every one of us has sinned. Not because sinning made us sinners, but we were sinners, which caused us to sin. And so therefore, we have to have an appropriate perspective on mankind. Okay, transformation involves a second thing. And it involves a personal encounter with Jesus. Not only a recognition of the truth and the truth about mankind and the fact that we are sinners, but it also requires and involves an encounter, a personal encounter with Jesus. In verses 7 and 8, we find this about Saul. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. Now, they had seen this miraculous thing that had happened to Saul, this bright light, the voice of God. They had experienced all this, but notice, they heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Now, later on in Acts chapter, what I think it's 22, verse 9, it says that they didn't hear anything, but they saw a great light. Okay, so, so there's this thing that says, uh, and, and however we reconcile those two things, the bottom line is they did not have a personal encounter with Jesus. Saul had the personal encounter with Jesus. Now, many people can have, be in the same room. Some people hear and respond and have a personal encounter with Jesus. Other people don't. It's kind of an interesting dilemma. In fact, in the 19th century, the British politician William Wilberforce, he went to this crusade meeting, this evangelistic meeting, and he took his friend with him, William Pitt. And the guy that was preaching there was Richard Cecil. 
And Richard Cecil presents the gospel, and Wilberforce, I mean, he was melted by the gospel, and his life was transformed, and he experienced a personal encounter with Jesus. Yet the guy that went with him experienced nothing. He didn't understand a thing that was said. And how can two people sit side by side and hear the message of God and come away with something completely different? Well, it's because some people get a personal encounter with Jesus and other people don't. It's kind of interesting. Now, Saul, he has this personal encounter. The guys that are with him, they don't get the personal encounter, even though they see the experience. They went to the evangelistic meeting, but they didn't see anything. They didn't hear anything. They weren't transformed by anything. Now, Saul was the only one who was given instructions afterwards. And what were the instructions? Okay, I want you to go here. I want you to wait for this guy. He's going to come and pray for you. I don't know the exact moment of Saul's transformation, but I believe it happens when Ananias comes, prays, and all of a sudden he can see. Now, not only can he see physically, but I believe that it implies that he sees spiritually as well. So he has this personal encounter with Jesus, and that brings us to our third thing. Transformation involves a call upon your life. Okay, First of all, we have to recognize the truth about us fact that we're sinners. Second thing is that we have to realize that that transformation involves this personal experience with Jesus. And then we have to understand a third thing, and that is that there's now a call upon my life. It's not mine to live anymore. My my future is not my own. And, you know, like the old gospel sings, uh, the future is not my own. I'm just a passing through. Okay. I'm just a passing through here and I'm going from here to there. But while I'm here, I have a purpose. I have a reason for that. Now, no one other than Jesus Christ shaped Christianity quite like Saul did. Okay. Saul becomes Paul. He has these three missionary journeys. He, he establishes churches throughout Europe and Asia. In fact, he had, spends up, spends his time in the Roman capital, Rome. And as a prisoner there, he converts several guards who then go to other places in the world as missionaries. It's an incredible story if you've ever read the story of Paul, and I would recommend that you do. Now, he was this incredible missionary, but it was not because he decided to go and be that, but simply because he recognized that there was a call of God upon his life. God had said, and what had God said? Well, let's take a look in Acts 9, 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument. Now, every one of you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is a chosen instrument of God. You have a purpose for being a Christian, and God places you in places that he doesn't place anybody else. So if you want to find out what is my purpose and where's my specialty, find out where you're the only Christian. Okay, That'll give you an idea. Find out where God wants you to spread his love, where he wants you to spread the knowledge of him, where he wants you to be an instrument of his. Find that out, and that will reveal to you what your special calling is. Now, Saul was going down uh, the gospel, or down the Damascus Road uh, without the intent of spreading the gospel. In fact, he was going out there to punish Christianity. In fact, he was out there in rebellion to God, persecuting Jesus, as we find out. Now, that was his goal in life. He has this miraculous transformation, and he becomes one of the greatest missionaries of all time. Now, I don't know if you believe in life transformation coming through in your behavior. I do, and I believe you ought to as well. 
If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have something living within you that causes you and gives you the power and the ability to rise above your current circumstances. Whatever you find yourself in, you say, well, gee, I could never do what what Saul did. I could never have that kind of transformation. I could never be the Paul. Good. You're not supposed to be the Paul. You're supposed to be the whoever you are in wherever you find yourself. Don't try to be somebody else. I remember when I first started uh, being a pastor, I thought, man, if I could just preach like Billy Graham, you know, I would be, I, that would be the most awesome thing in the world. I mean, you know, I could, you know, he has great response from people. He has a great delivery. He has great command. And I'm thinking if I could be like that, that would be awesome. And then one day God told me, he says, is your name Billy Graham? I said, well, no. He says, what's your name? I said, well, I'm Mike, you know. Okay, then be Mike. And I found out that it was okay to be me. And it was okay to be me as long as I followed the Jesus who lived in my heart, the one who led my life, the one who caused me to be transformed. It was okay to be me. And it's okay to be you. You have the permission. In fact, you have the command of God to be you. That's who he made you to be. Therefore, be you wherever you find yourself. Now, uh, he had these letters from the high priest with permission to do some religious things. And I want you to know that religion is far apart from transformation. Religion can kill you. Religion can hurt you. Religion can harm you. I won't, don't want you to be religious. I want you to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I want you to be a disciple. I want you to follow where God leads you, wherever you are, doing whatever you do. Now, I ask you some questions. How about you? Have you been transformed? Have you been transformed? You know, most people in this room would say, well, yeah, I have been transformed. Okay. Now, have you been transformed to be used by God or have you been transformed to be a better, more comfortable you? I'm going to suggest that if you have not been transformed to be used by God, you might want to go back and look at your transformation. Because that's what God does. He transforms us to be used by him. Romans 12, 1 and 2, and I'm going to close with this. It says this, therefore, and this is the, this is the same Saul who is now Paul. He wrote these words. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy. Remember he was merciless? Now he recognizes God's mercy. And he, he urges us, to offer our bodies, what we are in the flesh, as a living sacrifice. Now, how do you do that? You say, I no longer have permission or rights over my body. I give those to you, God. You place me where you want me, and where I find me, there will I serve you. That's offering your body as a living sacrifice. He says this, and he describes this sacrifice, holy, which means set apart for God. My body is now set apart for God, and it says, and pleasing to God. I want to be, you know, is it okay to want to be pleasing to God? Absolutely. In fact, that should guide your life, being pleasing to God. Now, what does he say about that? This is your true and proper worship. Worship is not what we do with our mouths and the songs that we sing in church. That is not worship. It's what we do with our bodies as they are submitted to God. That's worship. That's worship. And he concludes this in, in verse 2. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Okay, don't let that govern what you do, how you think, how you act. Okay? 
Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be what? Circle that word. Transformed. Transformed. And how do we get transformed? By the renewing of your mind. You think differently. You want differently. You believe differently. In the world, what do we believe about people in the world? You know, before you, were, before you were a follower of Jesus, you probably believed something along these lines. In fact, I hope you still don't believe it, but you might. That generally, people get what they deserve. Have you ever believed that? You know, and have you ever even consciously thought that? You know, and I'll be honest. Sometimes I see people, you know, they make bad mistakes with their life. You know, and I say, well, they got what they deserved. You know, now is that the proper way to think? No, if I renew my mind, I have what? Mercy. And mercy says people don't get what they deserve. They should get what they need. That's mercy. And so now my mind is transformed and I think, okay, no, that person who made a bad mistake, boy, they need something. What do they need? They need to know who's in control of this universe. They need to know how they can change their life. They need to know how they can change their control center. So therefore, I become an agent of that change in their life. I become now a Paul who is on a missionary journey to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people who have made bad decisions. And so it changes the way we think. Okay, so we renew our mind. And then the result of that is what? then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Have you ever wanted to do God's will? You have to change your mind first. You have to change your mind. A lot of times when we say we want to do God's will, we say what? Oh, gosh, I don't know if I have the wherewithal to do that. I don't know if I have the knowledge. I don't know if I have the time. I don't know if I have the, uh, the whatever it takes to do that. I don't know if I have the power. I don't know if what. What does Paul tell us in the book of Philippians? I can do what? All things through what? Through Christ who gives me strength. I can do all of that. If I'm called by God to do it, can you do it? Absolutely, you can. So then you will be able to prove and test, approve, test and approve what God's will is and his what? Good, pleasing, and perfect will. You can prove what that is. You can deliver that. You can do that by what? Transforming your mind. And that's where Paul comes. That's how Paul comes from Saul. Saul gets this transformation. He realizes some things. He realizes the truth about himself. He realizes through this personal experience with Jesus Christ that he now has a purpose in life. If you don't have purpose in life, then you, we just bump along. You know, we say, okay, well, I hope I get to the weekend, or I hope I get to the vacation, or I hope I get to the end of the year, or I hope I get to, you know, I've been asking a lot of people the last couple of weeks, you know, people that I meet, I said, why do you think it is that we celebrate New Year's? You know, what's the big deal about New Year's? And to a person, they say, it's a new beginning. And I say, is it a new beginning because we botched up the last year so bad? You know, that we look forward to the new year? You know, and to a large degree, it is. But I want you to know that we can live New Year's Day every day when we live in light of our transformation. So I pray today that you would have transformation because we need to transform for action as the church.